This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? Or what does that look like? Not only that, how do you know and how do you measure spiritual maturity? How do you know if you're growing? Now, some things things are easy to measure. For example, it's easy to measure uh, if your kids have grown. Uh, Back in the old days, you would, remember we would put those little uh, pencil marks on the kitchen wall every time you, you measured, and you could see that line getting higher. Today, what we do is we look at the day's Facebook memories, and this is from 10 years ago. That's Ethan and Sean. Now, uh, you can tell that they have grown in 10 years. Sean no longer has glasses, and I promise you his watercolor has proved significantly. He's using brushes now. Can we just like look at that for a second? That's also, is that monkey or banana in the background? What do you think? That's monkey? Okay, you see monkey in the background? Kind of like hiding out in the shadows in the back of the kitchen forever ago. It's easy to tell. It's easy to measure if you've grown as a runner. You just have to look at your times. They're getting faster. It's easy to measure if you've grown a, a social media platform. It's, it's gotten bigger. Your following's gotten bigger. It's easy to measure if you've grown a business. You look at the stock price. It's gotten to be worth more. But it's not so easy to measure if you've grown spiritually. In part because I think we misunderstand what spiritual maturity is. And so we end up measuring our growth the way the rest of the world does. We, we find numbers that are easy to measure. And we measure things like climbing higher, going faster, getting bigger, and adding more. But the thing is, is that rather than leading to spiritual maturity, rather than leading to us faithfully following the way of Jesus at a pace that is sustainable, that enables us to finish well, Bigger, better, faster, and more leads to exhaustion, frustration, and eventually burnout. And so that means we need a new method for measuring spiritual maturity. One, as we like to say, that starts small and goes slow and keeps it simple. Because there is, there is no fast track to spiritual maturity. You can't expedite this. We've got to take it slow. It's, um, it's a recipe that requires a slow cooker, not a microwave. And you all know my theology of the microwave. It's purely disgusting. The microwave's not disgusting. Just the food that you bring out of the microwaves is what's disgusting. And we can't measure our growth in, in days. We measure our growth in decades. So we need a new method for pursuing spiritual maturity. We also need to change how we measure maturity. It's not based on what you can do and and all that you know. It's not based on what you're able to do and how fast you can do it. No, our spiritual maturity is based on who it is we are pursuing and becoming more like. Because as Jesus says in John 13, if the command is to love, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. If the command is to love, then love should be the measure of maturity, shouldn't it? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what for one another? Love. Love. And so we're going to begin this new year looking at this new measure of maturity, of our living out the great commandment of loving God and loving others, loving all others, loving one another, 
loving our neighbors that God has put in our lives, and even loving our enemies. But when it comes to loving God, and and loving God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, two things come to mind. One is a greater desire to be with God, right? Thirsting for his presence, as we're going to see this morning in Psalm 63, And the other, is is it a greater desire to hear from God, to to know him, hungering for his word, as we're going to see next week in Deuteronomy 8. Psalm 63 is one of the many psalms uh, attributed to King David, as uh, the opening line says, a psalm written uh, about his time in the wilderness of of Judah. Now, David, he he wasn't out on a camping trip. Uh, He wasn't out on some sort of spiritual retreat. No, he, he, he was on the run. He was running for his life, and he was forced into hiding either by King Saul, who wanted to kill this, this young, anointed future king, a story that we read about at the, at the end of 1 Samuel, or on the run from his son Absalom, who wanted to kill his father and take the throne for himself, a story that we read about in the middle of 2 Samuel. Like, this, was a, this was a real-life Game of Thrones story that was playing out, and God willing, we probably won't, you probably won't find yourself um, on the run or in hiding, at least I hope. And uh, you're not going to find yourself lost in the physical wilderness of suburban Chicagoland. It's not going to happen. Uh, Ten minutes in any direction and you're going to come across at least one Walgreens and five mattress stores. Okay? <laughs> you're going to be okay. But I think we've all found ourselves in another kind of wilderness of sorts. I think, I think we've all found ourselves in a relational wilderness at times, feeling lost and alone, uh, abandoned and isolated, thinking everyone's out to get you and nobody's on your side, right? Thinking that, that everybody's turned on you and nobody's got your back. I think we found ourselves in an emotional wilderness at times, feeling empty and defeated. You've You've cried all the tears there are to cry, and there's nothing left. You, you feel numb inside, wondering what the point is anymore. Feeling like nothing's ever going to change. It's never going to get any better. But then we've also found ourselves at times in a spiritual wilderness, right? feeling both of those things only in relation to God feeling a, a relational distance from God. He, he feels so far away, you can no longer feel his presence. He, he sounds so silent, you can no longer hear his voice, and you begin to wonder if maybe God's given up on you, if God's left you, if God's abandoned you. We feel that relational distance, but we also feel that emotional distance from God at times, leaving your faith stale and dry, leaving you feeling numb and even dead inside. And when you reach that point, you just don't care anymore. You're ready to give up because it feels like God's given up. And one of the many signs that you've arrived in that wilderness is that this is the last place you want to be and we are the last people you want to be with. A sign that you've arrived in the wilderness is you don't remember the last time that you just sat with God that you opened your Bible, that you poured out your heart to him. And the thing is, is that only further isolates you in the wilderness. God feeling even more distant, God sounding even more silent. And and we've all been there. I don't need to ask you for a show of hands. We've all been there. 
And some of you, I know you're there right now in this very moment. And it, it took everything in you to get here. And I don't just mean it took your car all it took to start this morning. You didn't even want to go out and find out if your car could start. And it had nothing to do with the cold. If it was 75 degrees, you wouldn't have wanted to be here, but you're here. And I want to thank you for coming. Because I think um, what we find over time is that the Sundays we least want to be here are probably the Sundays we most need to be here. Amen? Amen. But I also want you to know something else, that if and when you find yourself wandering in the wilderness filled with doubts and asking questions, I need you to know that is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, regardless of what you might have been told in the past. Does that make sense? Doubts and questions aren't a sign of spiritual immaturity. No, spiritual maturity, it is not revealed in where you are. Instead, it is revealed in how you respond to where you are and what it is you're going to do next. And so if you're here this morning and you're in that wilderness, how are you going to respond to being in the wilderness? What do we do when we find ourselves there, feeling that emotional and relational distance from God? Well, that's what David expresses to us here in this psalm through a series of five steps that I think begin to reorient our hearts back to God. And the wilderness, the wilderness is disorienting. And so the first step that, that David takes here is simply to remember, to remember who God is. And so he begins with a declaration. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And he, he's declaring that among all the gods that existed in the ancient world at that time, that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the one and only God he chose to worship. Even there in the wilderness, it, it would be like me saying, oh, Jill, you are my wife. And that among all the wives, not just in this room, but throughout the world, you are the one that I've chosen to love and commit myself to and wholly devoted to. But also notice he didn't just say, oh God, you are God. No, he says, you are my God. It is a reminder of our, this, this personal, intimate nature of our relationship with God, much like how Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, our God who art in heaven. Not just God, ours. You are my God. He is our Father. We are his children. This is a reminder that ensured David's compass always remained pointed toward God. Whatever he was feeling, whatever it was he was facing, reorienting his heart toward God so that the next step he took always brought him closer to God, not further away because of how disorienting the wilderness is. Take, for example, you're, you're in a city you don't know very well, and you're, you're on the subway. And when you come out of that subway up to ground level, can we just be honest for a second? I feel like I got a really good compass. I don't know up from down, left from right, east from west, right? If it weren't for Lake Michigan, God, thank you for Lake Michigan. You don't know which way is east until you find the lake. And so uh, for Christmas, we went down to the city for a couple days, and we were coming up out of a red line station in the loop, and it was 
not in a east-west street, and so I can't see the lake, and uh, I do what any dad did. I just started walking. <laughs> and eventually, I was like, okay, this is the wrong way. Okay, it's good. And we, we turned, and what I said was, hey, bud, we're, we're taking the scenic route to the Art Institute. I, I wanted to take you by the cultural center to show you these beautiful Tiffany domes. You seen the Tiffany domes? They're incredible. They hadn't seen them before. They're just now realizing dad led them in the wrong direction. <laughs> the wilderness is disorienting. You're out in the unknown, away from everything that's familiar. You are out of your comfort zone, away from your normal rhythms. You're out of, out of your community, away from others. And when you don't know where to turn, so often we stand there frozen, don't we? Afraid of taking a step, afraid of going in the wrong direction. And that's why we begin with this first step of a reminder, a reminder of where it is we are headed. Reorienting our hearts toward God, saying, earnestly, I seek you. I want to be with you. I want to be nearer to you. So that regardless of where you are, that next step you take, draws you closer to God. And as we remember where it is we're headed, we need to recognize why it is we're headed there. Recognizing this, this longing that exists within us, this thirst that we're trying to quench. David, he goes on to write, he says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That dry and leery land. Let's try that again. This dry and weary land where there is no water is known as Arizona. Jill and I, we lived there for a few years after college, and one thing we learned is that you don't ever leave the house without taking water. Regardless of where you're going, regardless of how long you're going, you take water. I can only imagine today in Arizona, people are hauling around their 128-ounce Big Gulp Stanley in a cart behind them wherever they go somewhere. But the thing is, you don't just take the water, you've got to drink the water. If you come home and you're saying your 128 ounces is still full of water, it did you no good. Because here's the thing, you're going to get thirsty. And if you don't recognize that thirst before your body does, what you come to find out is that it's almost already too late. If you're thirsty, it's too late. And we need to recognize that thirst that exists within us. That longing that we have for things like love and acceptance and approval. And the thing is, the longer that we're away from God, the longer we remain not just in the wilderness, but lost in the wilderness, the more that thirst grows. And if we fail to recognize that thirst on our own, eventually it, it consumes us. We are driven by it to the point that we'll end up turning, we turn to the first well that we can find, whatever is most convenient, drawing whatever contaminated water it, it contains, no matter the consequences, all in hopes that that will quench your thirst. But what Jesus said to the woman that he sat by at the well in John 4 is that everyone who drinks of that water, you're gonna be thirsty again. You might as well have been drinking salt water. It'll never quench your thirst. And he says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. And it's not because he takes away the thirst. No, it's because he satisfies that thirst with a never-ending supply of himself. Amen. Donald Whitney, 
In his book, um, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, it's uh, the book that kind of inspired this five-week series that we're in. He writes, God initiates spiritual thirst in order to satisfy it. He goes on to say, God creates a thirst for himself so that he can satisfy it with himself. And we not only need to recognize that thirst that we all have, we also need to recognize that only God can satisfy that thirst. Only God can satisfy those longings that we have. It is a thirst given to us by him in order to be filled by him and only him. Now that we've remembered, reorienting ourselves to where it is that we're headed, and we've recognized why it is we're headed in that direction, the third step David offers here is to reflect. As he reflects on who it is he's headed towards. So he says in verse two, he writes, so I have looked upon you, I've looked upon God in the sanctuary. And he's, he, he's not reflecting here on uh, something he had seen in the past with his eyes, no, he, he's referring to something he had seen in his mind there in the wilderness. The, uh, he's using a Hebrew word here looking that, um, that refers to something more along the lines of a prophetic vision. And he's, he says, he, he writes, beholding your power and glory. And so we reflect on God's power. Power that, that causes us to stand in, in awe of God. Power David saw when Israel marched into battle, led by the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the power of God going before him, power that gives us hope, knowing that the one who spoke all of creation into existence simply by the power of his words goes before us, leading us out of the wilderness. We reflect on his power and we reflect on God's glory, glory that that causes us to, to fall on our knees before God. Glory that resided on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as it resided in the, the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. Glory that gives us hope, knowing that one day, even in the midst of the wilderness, we will again kneel in the presence of his glory. Knowing where we're headed, knowing why we're headed in that direction, knowing who it is we're headed toward, the fourth step now is to respond. Respond by taking a step out of the wilderness and a step towards God. And David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, this is how I will respond. With a, with a series of six sayings, uh, saying here is what I will do in order to pursue you, God, in the wilderness. And he's showing us how to respond to God's love. Love that, that calls out to us in the wilderness. Love that draws us near to him. Love that has chosen us as his own. As George said last week, God loves us because he loves us. God actively loves us because he loves us. I'll add one more, because he himself is love. That is who he is. And so when we find ourselves wandering the wilderness, here's how we should respond to God's love. First, we respond to God's love by worshiping God. Surprise, huh? We respond to God's love by worshiping God, worshiping with the entirety of our being. Uh, we, we worship with the words that we sing. He says, my lips will praise you. 
Hey, we, we worship with the entirety of our lives. He says, I will bless you as long as I live. We, we worship with our, with our bodies, with our hands, with our arms, saying, in your name, I will lift up my hands. And we take this step each and every Sunday when we gather together as God's people here in his presence, singing to God, praying to God, hearing to God, responding to God. And I want to repeat what I said earlier this morning. The Sundays when you least want to be here are the Sundays you probably most need to be here. Because those are the Sundays when we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness. Those are the Sundays when we most need to take this step to be in the presence of God and his people. And that's true even if you have nothing to offer other than your physical presence. That is true even if you cannot stand and sing. There's a reason we say stand as you are able. And that's true even if your worship is simply lifting your weary hands as high as you can lift them. Maybe with tears running down your eyes, it's okay. We respond by worshiping God. Second, we respond by finding contentment in God. Not, not only contentment uh, in his presence, but contentment in his provision. He says in verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat, rich food. I can only imagine he's talking about bacon. <sighs> but that contentment that he feels it leads to gratitude. He says, and my mouth filled with bacon will praise you with joyful lips. <laughs> but here's the thing. You're never going to take this step as long as your focus remains on what you don't have. That, that frustration you feel thinking that God has withheld something from you, something you think you have earned, something you feel you deserve, it will trap you and it will tie you down. But when you learn to be content with what God has blessed you with, however much or however little that is, you are free. We worship God, we find contentment in God, and we respond to God's love by simply being with God. Spending time with him, thinking of him. The, the NIV, it translates verse six saying, on my bed I remember you. I think of you, I, I meditate on you through the watches of the night. Now at first, um, at first that sounds like, that's a really great way to just end the day. You curl up in your bed under a blanket on a cold night, read your little daily devotion for the day, meditating on God, maybe write something in your journal. I tell you, that couldn't be any further from the scene that David is picturing here. David's on the run. He is in hiding. He is fearing for his life. And so this group that is with him, they, they followed standard military practice of the time of dividing the night into three four-hour watches, standing guard to see if, if Saul and his men or Absalom and his men were coming after them. These were long, sleepless nights, not on your really nice, cozy mattress with a feather pillow and a cozy blanket. No, they were on the rock floor of a cave. And we've all had those sleepless nights, haven't we? Some of you, I know, had it last night. Your mind's racing. You're filled with anxiety. You, um, you can't shut it off. You can't quiet the noise. 
And like no amount of melatonin or sleepy time tea is going to do it. And so you end up doom scrolling through Twitter. You put a show on Netflix. And before long, you realize that your alarm's going to go off in about an hour. The kids are going to be up at any moment. And you haven't even gotten out of bed yet, and you're dreading the day because you haven't slept a wink at all last night. That's what David's describing. And yet even then, he fixes his thoughts on God. Remembering who God is, his power, his glory, his love, things that remain unchangeable, things that that are transcending whatever he's facing, whatever he's feeling. Remembering who God is and remembering what God had done. He goes on to say, for you have been my help. He's remembering God's faithfulness. That God never once left him or forsaken him. And as a result, he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy, even in the wilderness, even in the sleepless night, even in the midst of the fear. He sings for joy. And that's why it's so important when we find ourselves in the wilderness that we respond by simply being with God. Not doing 100 things and going 100 miles an hour, just Take a breath. Sit down and be. Sit on the couch with God. Abiding in his presence, knowing that wherever you are, God is there. You feel yourself in the wilderness right now. God's God's there. There's nowhere he isn't. You might not feel his presence, but that doesn't make his presence any less real, any less near. So we spend time with God. We spend... We spend time with God in his word. We, we, the Bible, here's, here's my view of this book. This book is not about you, is it? Who's this book about? It's about God. I'll take Jesus. That works too. One and the same. Book's about God. We, we read this book. I don't know where that accent came from. <laughs> it's the cold. It's got to be, right? Leary Wand. We, we, we read, we read this book to remember who God is, to remember his power and glory and his love for us as his children. We read this book to remember what it is God has done, to remember his past faithfulness, and we, re- we read this book to be reminded of God's future faithfulness, of all that is that he has promised to do, that he will never leave you or forsake you. So we don't read this book to just memorize verses. We don't read this book to find ways to prove other people wrong. We read this book to spend time with God. Spend time with him. We also spend time with God in prayer. And we've been given a very narrow definition of prayer, and so I want to expand that definition a bit. Prayer is what David Benner refers to in his book, Opening to God, not simply as the words that we offer when we speak to God, but an opening of ourselves to God, being with him. Sometimes we're talking, sometimes we're listening, sometimes we're just being. And as we respond, as we take these steps, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, what we come to see here is that our trust in God grows. 
trusting in God. David says, my soul clings to you, never letting go. The NET translates this, my soul pursues you with this this sense of determination, trusting in, in God's leading, trusting in God's protection, knowing, David says, that your right hand upholds me. It wasn't me, it was you the whole time, God, knowing God is there in the wilderness with you, amen? God's got you. God loves you. He has not abandoned you. And as we begin to step out of the wilderness, the fifth step David gives here in this psalm is that we rejoice. We rejoice not only in who God is and what he has done, but all that he has promised to do. David, he writes in verse nine, he says, but those who seek to destroy my life, those that he is running from and hiding from, they they shall go down into the depths of the earth where the dead lie. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, defeated by God, and they shall be a portion for jackals, their bodies left on the battlefield to be devoured by scavengers. Okay. Every so often, David's got a psalm where there's a couple lines toward the end that make you go, hmm, these are they. Hear me out. David's not rejoicing in the death of his enemies. He's not rejoicing in the demise of his enemies. You know why? When we read the entirety of this book, I think what, not what I think, what I know we see, um, death is not something we celebrate or rejoice in, is it? Death is something we grieve and that we mourn. And it does not matter whose death it is. The death of a loved one or the execution of a convicted felon at the hand of the state, we grieve and we mourn. We do not celebrate. The death of a homeless person you never knew or the loss of a life before it ever took its first breath, we grieve and we mourn as followers of Jesus. Amen? We do not celebrate death because we view all life as sacred. Each human being created in the image of God, even the ones who took Others created in the image of God. We know that each human is known by God. The hairs, however many left, are counted and numbered, known by name. And so David, either as the anointed future king or the current king, he's not rejoicing in the death of his enemies. He's, what does he say? Who's he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in God. And he says, all who swear by God shall join in rejoicing God with him. For the mouths of the liars, those who speak against God, they will be stopped, they will be defeated. What David is rejoicing in is in a future victory as though it has already happened, knowing that this time in the wilderness, it will not last. No, he's rejoicing in knowing that God wins. He knows how the story ends. He rejoices in knowing that God's justice will be carried out, righting every wrong, restoring all that is broken, renewing all that has faded. And we join David in rejoicing. It's that hope of what lies ahead of of a kingdom that has arrived already but not yet in full, of of a king who reigns and will come again that we rejoice in. It fills us with a joy that overflows in rejoicing. We can't, we can't help but rejoice. Rejoicing in a God who is present with us in the wilderness. He has not for one second left us. A God who is faithful to lead us out of the wilderness. Not for a moment 
Has he forsaken us? Amen. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.